This is Craig Brown, and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that Passages will shine a unique light on text used for preaching at the First Free Methodist Church of Seattle or for anyone looking to dive deeper into the Bible. Today's passage is Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. It's the basis for the sermon here at First Free Methodist Church on December 10, 2023. It's part of our series called Extraordinary Life, which explores how God uses ordinary people for extraordinary things. Let's first hear the text from Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 18, and we'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. It's 2020 revision of this translation. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, since he was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had thought this over, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary for your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. So Joseph awoke from his sleep, and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. In Matthew's Gospel, we read about this very ordinary response of Joseph before he gets to some extraordinary opportunities. Now, in verses 18 and 19, we read about this ordinary response, and Matthew, in his gospel, opens the narrative about Jesus' birth using Joseph as the basic outline for the story. Now, there are three occasions in Matthew when Joseph is called to act via a vision or a message from God. In all of these times, he responds accordingly. Now, only Matthew holds these details. Luke's version of the birth of Jesus focuses on Mary and her experience, while Matthew's account focuses on Joseph. Matthew outlines how this is the account of Jesus, the Messiah. Now, just in this short text, we will encounter two titles and one name of Jesus. First title that we'll read about is Messiah, and it occurs in these two verses, verses 18 and 19. And the word Messiah literally means anointed one. Now, Mary was betrothed to Joseph, and it was a two-step process of betrothal, then public marriage. So first comes the contract to enter into the marriage arrangement, and then there's the second step, which is the actual marriage itself. So it's contract, marriage, and the entire deal is sealed through the consummation of that marriage. So an engagement could only end by death or divorce. It was legally binding. It's a very different arrangement than how we understand engagement today. 
So this is after their betrothal. In other words, the arrangement has been made, but before they came together, which is a reference to their coming together in the public ceremony and then the consummating of the marriage. They're in this in-between space. Now, Mary was found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Now, how Joseph knew about this is not the point of the story. It doesn't tell us whether the angel spoke this message to her or whether or not Mary told Joseph herself. We don't really know. What we do know from this text is that Joseph is described as a righteous man. Not overly holy. This isn't meant to describe an exceptional virtue. This is just a name applied to a person who is a usual adherent to Jewish law. He's a normal Jewish man who abides by Jewish law. And he didn't want to disgrace Mary publicly. So he had concluded there was no need to scandalize her. The issue here is that his righteous observance of the law demanded a divorce, but he did not want her to suffer a public shaming and punishment. So his ordinary response in verses 18 and 19 is about finding this balance between the two. How can he honor the law that he's bound to, and how can he shield Mary? He's functioning under the assumption that she's become pregnant through some other kind of normal way, which would mean, in this case, adultery. It hasn't crossed his mind something else is going on here. So he's using all of his common sense to do the best thing he can do. And that opens a key passageway for us. Common sense is a gift to be used unless it's corrected by the Holy Spirit. Now, Joseph's decision to deal with Mary's apparent adultery is the best nuance he can find. He honors his own tradition as a righteous man while seeking that which is best for Mary. And in our day-to-day routine, this practical way of living is grounded, well, well. We know that he, Joseph, will be directed to move into a new course of action. But for now, he's doing the best he can, and the same is true for us. Of course, we want to live prayerfully, but we also act and live in a way that's consistent with who we are. And so we make decisions based on common sense, and there's nothing wrong with that. But in the midst of making those decisions by common sense, we need to also be listening for how God might be leading us. In any kind of dilemma or situation we're facing, common sense is not our only ally. Our ally is the Holy Spirit, to listen carefully to how God might be speaking and moving in our lives sometimes in concert with common sense, but as we learn in this story of Joseph, sometimes contrary to common sense. We turn to verses 20 to 23, where Joseph is now going to hear this word from an angelic messenger. Now, verse 20 spells out Joseph's common sense. It says, after he thought this over, Then an angel appeared to him in a dream. Now, dreams are a common appearing place for the divine. We read throughout scripture many times where God comes and speaks to individuals in a dream. And so notice how the angel addresses him in the dream. The angel says, Joseph, son of David. So the Davidic lineage in Matthew now becomes meaningful 
You know, the opening part of Matthew's gospel in chapter one is oftentimes skimmed right over because it contains this very long and kind of tedious genealogy about Jesus. Well, here we find out why that is there. So when the angel speaks to Joseph in this dream, he addresses him as son of David. This Davidic lineage, this fact that Joseph is a descendant of David is important. The angel's appearance is grounded in his identity as a descendant of David. And the angel says, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. So the direction that he receives is to continue forward with the marriage as it is arranged. Now he's going to need to explain why Mary is pregnant before their wedding. In other words, he's going to have to explain how they've been partnered together. And what this means for Joseph is that Mary, of course, would bear some form of disgrace, whether or not she had committed adultery with someone else, that another man that was, of course, not Joseph, or whether Joseph had violated the marital covenant by having sexual relations with Mary before their public ceremony and the appropriate consummation of their marriage. The pathway that has never occurred to Joseph and crossed his mind appears here, that the public disgrace that Mary is going to have to deal with, now Joseph is going to have to hold it as well. And that the child conceived in her, the message continues to be conveyed to Joseph, is conceived by the Holy Spirit. It's very precise language here that Matthew used in recording this story. She did not become pregnant by any normal means. It was conceived of the Holy Spirit. And then the angel goes on to say that she will give birth to a son. Again, that's a nod to the divinic lineage of Joseph. In other words, the, the, the kind of a Davidic line is passed through the male and so through Joseph comes this lineage or connection to David. The angel further explains that you're going to name him Jesus, and that Jesus is a shortened form of the word Joseph, and it means God is salvation. And of course, the very next thing that the angel says is that he will save his people, not from the Romans, but from their sins. So in Matthew's gospel, there's a clarity at the outset that Jesus has not come to be some sort of political revolutionary, but he has come to bring an atonement or a forgiveness, a salvation from sin. And this is in a fulfillment of a, a prophecy to some degree. The, the text that's quoted here is Isaiah 7.14. And this passage of scripture that's quoted here where it says, Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel. This particular passage of scripture finds its fulfillment in the time in which Isaiah wrote. And so it's uh, interesting how this text is used here, even though it historically had its own point of fulfillment. And its point of fulfillment was in Hezekiah who was the son of King Ahaz, for whom Isaiah 7.14 was written. It helps us understand a little bit about how the New Testament writers, like Matthew and others, utilize scripture from the Old Testament as a form of prophetic um, uh, statement and fulfillment about Jesus. They use them typologically or allegorically, not always literally. Sometimes they do, but oftentimes the writers are trying to show a pattern 
of how God has moved and to show that this same pattern with Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, is the similar pattern here with Jesus. It says that the virgin shall conceive in this particular passage from Isaiah 7. And remember, the original passage of Isaiah 7 is written in Hebrew. And then the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, and that is called the Septuagint. And the writers of the New Testament, when they quote the Old Testament, they're not quoting the Hebrew, they're always quoting the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In other words, the Greek translation of Hebrew in the Septuagint, and that's what's going on here. And so what we're reading here, when it talks about the word virgin, it can mean in Greek, a young woman or a virgin. And even in Hebrew, it's oftentimes used interchangeably in that space. Then it says that you will call him Emmanuel. And Emmanuel is, of course, a, a Hebrew reference. It means God with us. And this is a title of Jesus, not the name given to him. And this follows Jewish tradition about the text. Now, many in Jesus's day expected this text in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 to be about the Messiah. And this helps us understand why Matthew uses this text. It's not so much that he's ignorant of the fact that the text found its fulfillment in Hezekiah, who was Ahaz's son. It's a recognition and a nod to the fact that Matthew knows that this text from Isaiah 7:14 was commonly held as a messianic expectation in the time of Jesus. So Matthew translates uh, this word Emmanuel, which means God is God with us, into um, out of Hebrew into Greek, what it appears to us in English. It says God with us in that text. It, and you'll see at the end of the the passage there in verse 23, they shall name him Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Matthew's trying to help out his Greek readers who may not know what Emmanuel means. Now, all of this opens up a key passageway for us, that God's saving act requires a degree of faith and trust on our part. Joseph is asked to put his own life on the line with Mary's to do what God has asked both of them to do in partnership requires a trust in what God is doing. Joseph could have easily walked away from this, but because of the angelic messenger that appears to him here in two more times, he chooses to remain and be engaged in the process at risk for Mary and at risk for himself. Now notice that God doesn't rescue Mary or Joseph from what's happening. What we do read is that God promises to be with them. Will Joseph act as if that matters? And for us, that question rings true. That oftentimes when we are praying in difficult moments in our lives, we're praying for rescue, deliverance. And what God promises us is to be with us, that we have to stay engaged in the process. We have to do the work. We have to stay in the moment, trusting that God is with us at all times and in all places. Our text turns finally to verses 24 and 25 in the extraordinary response 
that Joseph brings after he's had this vision. Now, in keeping with the other two instances of Joseph's response that you'll read later in Matthew's gospel, he awakens and he does exactly what he's told to do. He took Mary as his wife, meaning he proceeded with a public ceremony knowing she was pregnant. Now, what we don't know in the text is if others knew. What matters here isn't whether others knew or this had the appearance of what we call in American culture a shotgun sort of wedding. What matters here is Joseph's obedience to what he was told to do. This act of including Jesus in his household brings the Davidic line to Jesus. Now, the text tells us he didn't have any sexual relations with her until she gave birth to Jesus. And this is all part of trying to affirm the reality that this child that's been conceived within her is from or of the Holy Spirit, not him. And Joseph followed the directions the angel gave him, that when he was born, he named him Jesus. It opens up a key passageway for us here. Understanding is the beginning of obedience to God. Joseph follows the instruction to take Mary as his wife, but there's something a little bit more here. By refraining from sexual activity with her until after Jesus is born, he conveys something else. He moves beyond understanding by recognizing that Jesus is a descendant of David and that the virgin birth of Jesus has to be maintained. It's a small nuance, but it's very important. See, Joseph just doesn't do simply what's asked of him. What was asked of him is to take Mary as his wife and to name the child that would be born Jesus. There was nothing in the instruction about him not having sexual relations with Mary at all until after the child was born. So what happens in this text is that Joseph goes a step beyond what was asked. In other words, his obedience uh, functions in a way that extends, if you will, the spirit of the instruction given to him by the angel. He doesn't do simply what was asked. He owned the meaning of what was asked. His actions are not robotic. He's just not complying, but rather he accepts and he understands and he really embraces what is happening to Mary and now what is happening to him. So his response is personal. It's purposeful. God is moving in him and he allows God to move in him with total freedom, including the purpose of Joseph's life and in many ways, the reason that he is now married to Mary. I wonder if our obedience to God functions in the same sort of way. That if we are looking to see what that next step with God is, that's very personal and very purposeful, beyond simply what we've been invited or asked to do, but that to step forward with it in great faith, knowing that our obedience is just the beginning and that what God is longing for us is to walk with him one step at a time in concert with his movement in our lives and extending forward God's purposes and mission for our life every day. If you have comments or reflections, I'd welcome to hear them. 
please visit my website, revcraig.com. Click on News in the upper right-hand corner, and then you'll see a pop-up menu that lists Podcast. Click on that, and then click on a specific episode and leave a comment. I'd also encourage you to visit our church's website, ffmc.org, firstfreemethodistchurch.org, to learn more about free Methodism and how you can connect with our community. I bid you all grace. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.